Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone, this is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm here today with Tori Haggerty. Tori, how you doing? I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks for having me. You got it. Glad to have you on. And I've seen you on LinkedIn. I know you've got a book that we're going to reference. And Tori, help me from committing my first ever error of making it through a recording without hitting the record button. When I have my guests on, the first thing I do is I hit record and I didn't do this this time. So his expertise on doing webinars and things saved my butt on this one. So Tori, I owe you for that. And uh, you've got a great bio. So I want to have people understand the journey you've taken through today from your bio, which reads real. It's very interesting to me. So Tori is a best-selling author and compliance professional who's taught dozens of compliance topics to thousands of bankers over his 15-year banking career. He started out as an FDIC-commissioned examiner and has sat in about every sense, including compliance officer, auditor, and now CEO of a consulting company. He has also founded a training university, launched the nation's first-ever commercially available fair lending school and fair lending certification. He's passionate about compliance and helping other people understand this often complex topic. He will admit his memory is unique, which led him to actually enjoy working with regulations. And I can relate to that. I have a strange fascination with regulations myself. He says that his brain just remembers things that nobody else cares to remember. Like every baseball World Series champion since 1947, by the way, I quizzed him in the three I asked about, all related to the Minnesota Twins, two that they won, one that they lost, and he nailed it. Or all 46 presidents in order. He loves teaching compliance and with more than 300 exams and audit projects under his belt, He has many stories to rely on when teaching. He's also a master dart player, holder of seven state championship titles, a mediocre bowler, and a recovering golfer. Now, he also retired after 20 years in the Air National Guard as an officer, and thank you for your service. My in-laws did that. My father-in-law was a navigator. And so, Tori, also, I referenced the fair lending schools that he created and the certification, and that led to him in May of 2022 publishing his first book called Unfair Lending, Why Discrimination in Banking Still Exists and How to Prevent It. And we're going to talk a little bit about the book and all of the things above. Tori, I'm excited to have you and share your knowledge with my podcast viewers. How are you doing today? Thanks, Mark. I'm awesome. It's great to be here. And I like talking fair lending and I like talking compliance, which it's usually not an exciting topic for most people, but something you need to be passionate about. And I am, and I'm very happy to be here and talking with you today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to kind of pick your brain. So I mentioned that you were a commissioned compliance examiner with FDIC. My background was my 33 years at NCUA was all NCUA. And NCUA has generalist examiners that handle compliance. And then they have specialists that will handle fair lending, but they only do roughly 25 or 30 of those a year. So it's kind of like getting audited by the IRS. It doesn't happen very often, but if it does happen, it can be kind of intense. And the flip side of that is where you came from in the journey that you were on with FDIC before you went off into consulting 
is that the FDIC has a, a more robust, more detailed full exam, a separate exam on compliance and things like that. So maybe we could touch upon that as we maybe compare and contrast that as it relates to credit unions, banks, and the things that you've seen with FDIC and the things that you've seen now that you're consulting both for banks and credit unions. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start because honestly, I see the NCUA and the credit union world leading in that direction. The FDIC, they pretty much split it out. The OCC, NCUA, they're a little bit different on how they do things, but the exam team are very similar. As you mentioned, the NCUA are generalists. They cover all areas. The FDIC says, hey, safety and soundness, we're going to send you off on this track. You're going to do risk management, CAMELS components. You're going to do BSA and IT. But then over here, we have a whole different set of examiners, compliance, you have fair lending, we have the Community Reinvestment Act, which I know doesn't apply to most credit unions, maybe you have a state law, but you have all this consumer compliance that goes off on its own tangent. And don't get me wrong, there's three dozen laws and regulations that you need to know, but as an FDIC examiner that specialized in compliance, I got really good at doing just compliance. And when we do, when we, well, not me anymore, but at the FDIC, when we do a compliance reviews, we basically did fair lending at every single examination, every time. That was a three-year cycle. But regardless of the size or the complexity of the bank, every compliance exam had a fair lending component. Now, if you're small and non-complex and there's not a lot to do or not a lot of risk, it may be a pretty easy examination. If you're large and complex, it could be a large part of the examination, but it was expected and that's what we did every single time. Now, that's kind of changed over the years and it's risk-focused. So they may dig in really deep in some areas or sometimes it may be really high level. But for a credit union to sit here and listen to that, thinking that every bank pretty much gets an exam every time and they may have never even seen a fair lending review. I'm not saying that that necessarily is the future for credit unions, but I think we all can see that we're starting to go down that route. So credit unions really need to start paying attention and educating themselves on how do I prepare for that and how do I build a fair lending program? Because I think we all want the same thing. My company, my goal, and I talk about this in my book too, is to end discrimination in the lending industry. That's what our goal is. Now, I realize that's a big lofty goal and what's one white guy in the middle of upper Midwest going to do to accomplish a goal like that. But I've devoted the rest of my career to try to accomplish that. And through education, I think that we can make a dent in that. And educating credit unions is another step towards that on here's what you can do to build prevention into your program. Absolutely. And I would say, and I've said this on, on other podcasts and online and emails and things to my email list is I fully believe NCUA is going to move more towards compliance as a bigger emphasis, whether I doubt they'll ever get to a separate exam like the FDIC structure. But Chairman Todd Harper is going to be around for another five years. He currently doesn't have a second Democratic vote to do the type of expanding into whether it's doubling the amount of exams, fair lending exams that happen or tripling it. I will predict that when his term is up five years from now, NCUA will be doing more of the fair lending exams and other compliance type emphasis because when I was there, when he was in the public and congressional affairs as the director and a political appointee there, working for the NCUA before, board before he became chair, he was very passionate about it. He fully believes in the importance of it, as do you, right? As do I. And he's now in a position or about to be in a position when Biden puts in another Democrat after Hood's term comes up 
where he can actually influence that. And he's been wanting to do it, influence it more than he already has. He talks about it a lot. He's had some more resources added to it. And he's definitely put his footprint on it. But being able to control the budget with another Democratic vote is going to impact it in some way. So credit unions can expect to have the likelihood of actually having a fair lending exam go up. And to that point, you talked about prevention. So prevention and training and things. So if you've had a fair lending exam from NCUA, they can point out some things that can be helpful and you can have some aha moments. But it's much better if when they come in, they go, wow, you had everything buckled down and you prevented it. So let's speak a little bit. I know that prevention's a big part of teach a man to fish and he can fish forever. Teach a man or a woman to eliminate fair lending and your organization is going to be better. So let's discuss what you've learned about how to achieve that, how you help your clients achieve that, how you educate people in that to that end. Absolutely. So one of the things that we look at in our school and I talk about in the book is building a program free of discrimination. So policies and procedures are a big part of that. Now, policies and procedures can be a buzzword. You can throw that around. I can rubber stamp a policy. Heck, the second exam I was ever part of after I started as an examiner, I'm sitting down and I'm reading this bank's loan policy and it says ABC Bank at the top of it. And I look over to the examiner next to me and I said, I thought we were at one, two, three bank. And he says, we are. I'm like, this says ABC bank at the top. It didn't even have the right bank name at the top of the policy. And he kind of looked at me and he just shook his head. And he said, this happens all the time. You get a, some random policy from a buddy or a sister bank or whatever, and you just rubber stamp it. So yes, policies and procedures they may not be effective, but actually building effective policies and procedures. What does that look like? Well, first of all, it's specific to your organization. Second of all, they're clear and concise. Okay. So how do you build clear and concise policies and procedures to help with a fair lending program? Well, the biggest areas I look at is what you do in underwriting, but also what you do in pricing. Because the decision on whether or not to make a loan is really one of the biggest parts on fair lending. And then how you set the terms, conditions, rates, fees of the loan is another part because I can make you a loan even if you're a minority or a female or whatever prohibited basis category you want. And I can argue that I'm lending fairly, but if the terms and conditions are not as favorable as others with similar creditworthiness, it's still unfair lending. So when I look at policies and procedures, I'm looking for clarity. So I once reviewed a loan policy that said, no recent late payments. That was their guidance to their lenders. Well, what the heck does that mean? What does no recent late payments mean? What's the exactly. definition of recent? It, What's late? It, is yeah. that yeah. yeah? Is that in the last three months, six months, twelve months, twenty-four months? Is it only recent late payments with us, or do I have to care about recent late payments with others? I once read a rate sheet on pricing loans that said, "Here's how you price luxury vehicles." Well, what's a luxury vehicle? If you ask my twenty-one-year-old daughter. She thinks a new Honda Accord is a luxury vehicle. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Hondas. I've owned four. But in my opinion, a Honda Accord is not a luxury vehicle. Well, what's your opinion, Mark? Does it have to be a certain brand? Does it have to be a certain value? Tori, I'll know it when I see it, right? Exactly. Exactly. And then I also saw one that said classic car. Well, what's classic? Well, in the state of South Dakota, where I live, the state government defines a classic vehicle. In other words, if I want to register it as classic, as 25 years or older. Okay, well, that's specific. That's clear. If I'm a lender, I know exactly what's expected of me. I know what a classic vehicle is. But just saying classic vehicle, just saying no recent late payments, just saying luxury vehicle is unclear. 
So everybody that's listening to this can go back and look at your policy and look at your procedures and basically ask yourself, is there any way that a lender could interpret this differently either than what we intended or can other lenders interpret this differently from each other? I like the swap a lender example that I use. And basically what that says is take a lender from another organization. I don't care if it's a bank, a credit union, or a mortgage company. Take a lender with 10 years of experience, somebody that knows how to make loans, that understands basic lending principles, understands loan to value, debt to income, credit score, all those fun things, and grab them from another organization and sit them down at an office in your institution and give them nothing except for your policies and your procedures and your checklist. They're not allowed to ask a single question. And now funnel 10 customers to that lender and let them do their job. And they should, just following your policies and procedures, make the exact same fair and consistent loan decision every time only by following your policies and procedures. And if they don't consistently make that loan decision, your policies and procedures are not clear, which opens yourself up in your organization up to fair lending risk. So that example, you triggered a a synapse in my head. I was at a CUNA GAC event when I was at NCUA and they would have amazing speakers and they had Sully Sullenberger who landed the plane on the Hudson. On the Hudson. And I tell you what, so the speech was riveting because it was the actual tape of him talking to air traffic control and he would pause and then he would say what was going through his mind, et cetera. And then he, you know, they turned it around, the birds hit, they turned it around, they landed on the Hudson and they saved everybody's life. And then he explained, you know, how it related to the people he was speaking to. And it was the fact that he went in, he was the pilot, his co-pilot was there. He had never met with him in his life before. And they were so well-trained, they were so well-prepared based on the policies and procedures of how they knew to do what they were doing. And he would pause it and say, hey, if the co-pilot hadn't done this within a half second of what I said, we went to land in the plane. If he hadn't done this, we went to land in the plane. We knew each other, but we didn't know each other because of how well we were prepared to do what we were required to do. It's not necessarily life and death. But it's the exact same thing. Put that, swap the lender. If they can read those policies and procedures and they can make the same decision if you were, if it was you looking at the loan. Absolutely. So when you're building a fair lending program, you're setting the stage. The FDIC really pushes hard on a compliance management system. And a compliance management system is your policies and procedures. That's the first component of your compliance program, policies and procedures. The second component is training. How do you train your people? Now, yes, we're talking about basic fair lending training, but what about basic lender training? How many organizations actually have, think about boot camp for lenders. How many organizations actually go through basic lender training? So let's grab that 10-year lender and bring them in our organization. I shouldn't have to train that 10-year lender on basic lending principles. They should understand that. That's part of why I hired them, and that's part of why I'm paying them more than a brand new lender trainee. However, have I actually trained them on my policies and procedures? Do they know how to calculate debt-to-income ratios at this organization? Do they know that we use NADA value or Kelly Blue Book or how we do appraisals or whatever? I need to train them on the basics on how my organization runs and train them on my policies and procedures. So 
thinking of training, yes, it's regulatory training. What does regulation B tell us about race and color, religion, sex, national origin, the prohibited basis and things like that. But it's also training on how to do your job at your organization. A lot of times that gets overlooked. You assume, oh yeah, they've read policy. They've read procedures. Yeah, we all read it quote unquote when we start. And then I don't see it again for another 15 years. We do lots of fair lending interviews when we do our fair lending audits. And I basically sit down with the lender and I ask them simple questions. Now I've done my homework in advance. This is an old examiner tool that I always recommend everybody do when they're reviewing their program. And we teach it in our fair lending school. We have an entire module totally dedicated to fair lending interviews. And the basic premise is, is first of all, you have to learn how lenders are supposed to do their job. So you read loan policy, you read underwriting criterion, you go through checklists, you know how they price their loans. And then you basically sit down and you play dumb for a half an hour. Tell me how you take an application. How do you steer customers into loan products? How do you underwrite loans? Oh, well, we have a loan to value. Oh, do you have a maximum loan to value? Yeah, our maximum loan to value is 90%. Okay, I'm taking notes. Does that match what's actually in policy? I literally sat down with a guy one time in my examiner days and I said, how do you price loans? And he says, well, we have a base rate of about 6% that we go off of. And I said, really? Because your compliance officer said you have an internal rate sheet. And of course, I know he has a rate sheet. It's literally in the stack of papers under where I'm taking notes, but he has no idea. He doesn't know that I know all of this stuff and I'm just asking him simple questions. And then he said, oh yeah, yeah, we have a rate sheet. And I said, okay, great. Well, can I see it? Sure, let me grab it for you. And this guy starts digging through his desk frantically for three or four minutes trying to find this rate sheet and he finally hands it to me. And it's dated 1996. Now, I don't like throwing impromptu math at people, Mark, but if I've been doing this 15 years and it was dated 1996, you can tell how old that was. Simply asking the question to a lender, how do you price loans? And obviously his answer was not accurate. Those are the steps. You train people and then you ask questions and you monitor. That's how you build prevention into your program is give them a good program to set up free of discrimination and then make sure they follow it. And that right there gets you literally 60, 70% of the way to a discriminatory free lending program. Yeah, odds are he's not consistent. And is he consistent in ways that violate the law? No, But you've opened yourself up to the reality that, that, that A, it's possible because he's not paying attention and B, you open yourself up to to litigation and all that. But what you just described to me was what we used to call the Columbo approach of doing the exam, right? It's like Columbo, you probably know Columbo because of your, his, your thirst for knowledge and things, but your age wouldn't indicate that you should. But but yeah, at NCUA, I had a few people that worked for me that use the Columbo approach. And I know it kind of sounds that way, but it, it's really not. It, fair lending interview, they usually last about 30 minutes and Fair lending interviews, they serve two purposes. The first purpose is to find out if lenders are actually following policies and procedures. And it's it's a great way because, Mark, I can look at data all day long. I can dig through loan files. I can do a file analysis. I can look at your Humda data. And the data only says one thing, but sitting down and asking lenders basic questions on how they do their jobs. We have uncovered some of the most interesting findings, some egregious discrimination, because oftentimes the second part of a fair lending interview, the second reason for it is to find out if lenders are doing anything discriminatory. Now, if you're listening to this, you may think to yourself, Tori, why on earth would I as a lender ever admit to doing something discriminatory to an examiner in a fair lending exam or an auditor? And while that's a perfectly reasonable question, the simple answer is, is those lenders often have no idea 
that what they're doing is discriminatory and they'll freely admit that, hey, this is the way I do business. And they have no idea that what they're doing is discriminatory. So as a compliance officer, as an auditor, as a chief credit officer, as a manager of a credit union, you want to sit down with your lenders and ask them basic questions on how they do their job. Yeah. And they're shocked and surprised and they're disappointed in themselves when you explain what the rule requires, what they're doing and how it violates it. And then they have that aha moment. Look at it forever differently. Right. Now, in a piece of advice from somebody who's been auditing and examining for a long time, you have to keep an open, trustful, honest environment. And you can't be holding those things against your people either. Because you start doing these interviews, you start having these conversations, and you find out your people aren't following policies and procedures or potentially are breaking the law. You start holding that against them. And that'll be the last time that anyone ever has a fair lending interview with you. So you have to have an open, honest, collaborative culture at your organization when you do things to say, hey, we're doing this to uncover issues and get stronger as an organization, not to hold people's feet to the fire or for people to right. lose their jobs. Right. Latitude for learning. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's perfect. You need to learn from the mistakes, correct them so that you can stay on the right side of the law and stay on the right side of serving your people as best you can. So the transition. So we chatted a little bit on the front end. The, tell me a little bit about the school and how the school led to the book and anything you'd like to share relative to that. Yeah, so I feel that discrimination and redlining and where we are as a society today, it's actually interesting. There's a book actually, The Color of Law, it's by Richard Rothstein, he's a professor and he wrote this book, uh, I wanna say six years ago, and it's the most comprehensive history of redlining that I've ever read. And he just wrote a follow-up book to it that I have not read yet, that I have a copy of it. I haven't read it yet because there's a reason why I'm actually writing my second book on redlining and I want to finish my book and then I'm going to read his book because he gives some suggestions on how to fix redlining and I don't want his suggestions to influence my book. So I'm going to write mine first and then read his and then comment on his. But it's interesting because the federal government, and this is what Richard argues in his book, actually pushed and required redlining on pretty much every major metro in the United States. Literally forced redlining and forced housing segregation on every metro, all the way back from the Civil War, but especially through the 1930s with the founding of the FHA. And then it's sad for me to say as a 20-year military veteran, but even the VA, they would not guarantee or they would not secure mortgages for people of color. And that was a open blatant racist policy for decades, all the way until basically the civil rights movement in the 1960s and the passage of the Fair Housing Act. So think about this, the federal government literally pushed, and as state and local governments, it was all levels, pushed segregation on us as a country. And now the federal government is hammering banks, mortgage companies, and credit unions for the redlining that they pushed upon us. So it's a little bit ironic that now they're trying to go back and clean up their problem. So when I look at redlining, I don't necessarily blame the financial institutions. Redlining our country was so segregated for so long. When you pass laws outlawing redlining, that doesn't just erase the problem. People have been rooted in neighborhoods for decades, for generations. And now all of a sudden you open up credit to allow people to go anywhere. That doesn't mean they just pick up and move. So you look at this problem, you have racist policies that created a lot of these issues. And I feel that anti-racist policies and education is what's going to move us forward as a country to start solving some of these problems. So one of my goals through the school is to educate bankers, compliance officers, auditors, credit unions, mortgage companies on how to build a program 
up from the ground in fair lending and then how to actually audit that program. So as an examiner, I got the opportunity to go through the FDIC's fair lending examination school. And then as I got into the industry, after my examiner days, I looked around and I thought, man, what a great opportunity. Everybody should get a chance to go through this fair lending school. Well, you can't. You have to be a regulator. Now, some of the other regulators have their own fair lending schools as well. But unless you're a federal regulator, you're not going to get a chance to go through fair lending school. You can, at best, go through a one-hour fair lending training that talks about the definitions of discrimination, gives you three examples of other organizations that have screwed up, and says, good luck. Well, how is that helpful? That, that teaches me nothing on how to build a program. I know nothing about the loan life cycle of fair lending risk. I know nothing about how to do audits. So that was my goal was to teach organizations on how to build a fair lending program and how to audit their fair lending program. And that's how the school was born. I started creating it in 2019. We launched it in 2020. And then at the beginning of 2023, we totally redid it and filmed all new video content and added two hours to the curriculum and added another video module. So it basically teaches compliance officers, auditors, everything they need to do and know how to build a program. And then some of the best stories from that we took and we put into the book to say, here's how you build prevention in your program. Because we mentioned it before, I'm just a firm believer that it's so much easier to prevent something from happening than to clean it up after the fact. And I just feel that there's so many organizations out there, especially on the credit union side, that haven't had fair lending forced on them all these years, like most banks have, even more specifically the FDIC has, that once the NCUA starts pushing more on fair lending audits, we're going to start uncovering a lot of more of these fair lending problems. And I feel that credit unions could be doing themselves a service, not only to themselves, part of it call it selfishness. I don't care. Call it self-preservation. I want to solve my problems so I don't get in trouble. That's one reason to want to get educated on fair lending. Great. That's fine. I don't care if it's a selfish reason. Do that. Number two, look at it as a way to better serve your community and have a more prosperous community. I once heard somebody say that the minority market for lending is a multi-trillion dollar market that really has not been tapped near to its full potential. In other words, Black and Hispanic applicants around the country is a multi-trillion dollar market that they are not having access to credit because of discriminatory policies, procedures, laws, redlining, that think of how our communities could prosper if more people had access to the financial industry and could get a loan and buy a home and start a business and how our organizations think of it as well. Another selfish reason and fine, great, it's a selfish reason, but think how an organization could prosper by growing into a new market that's previously untapped. And the biggest thing is high minority areas, majority minority census tracts are being redlined against, which is basically the heart of redlining those are risks. Look at those as big, scary, fair lending risks, or look at those as opportunities. Opportunities to expand, opportunities to get into new markets, opportunities to strengthen your community. And what does that do? That strengthens everybody. No, that's great. So when you're talking about redlining and fair lending, uh, there's a lot in the news recently about appraisal bias. Any thoughts on how that might link or might not link to the discussion we're having here or how financial Absolutely. institutions? It's very much on the same topic. Now, appraisal bias is an issue that's been around a long time, but it's only made the news recently. So this is not a new issue. This is not a new topic. 
I don't want to call it a buzzword or anything like that. It's not a hot topic because it's been a significant issue for a long time. It's just finally coming to the forefront. So appraisal bias is essentially where an appraiser who I've seen some statistics on, a large percentage of appraisers are white males. And I don't remember the numbers. I want to say something like 70% or more of appraisers are men. And I once thought I heard 97% of appraisers are white. So the idea behind appraisal bias is when a human appraiser appraises a home either owned by a minority person or in a minority neighborhood artificially deflates the value of that home and by a significant amount. So let's just take a 2000 square foot home. You put it in a white neighborhood or a minority neighborhood, and they could be two miles away from each other. The home in the minority neighborhood, it could be just the same quality, the same build, the same year. Heck, it could even be a nicer home in the minority neighborhood. It could be devalued 10, 40, 50% because it's in a minority neighborhood or simply because it's owned by a minority. So there's this term called whitewashing that I'll be honest with you, I was ignorant to until up to about a year or two ago. And whitewashing is for minority borrowers. This is just old news for them. They've known this for a long time. But for a lot of people, this is, again, new news to us that whitewashing is essentially where you erase any evidence of the people that live in that home. Now, most people want to do this anyway when you're selling your home because the idea is is you don't want to have your family pictures and stuff in your home right, because right. you <laughs> want the person that comes there to imagine it's their home. And to when visualize you have family, it as theirs. Right. When you have all your family pictures up, they're like, well, that's their home. This, I don't see myself in this home. But whitewashing takes it a step further where you erase any evidence of even the race of the person that lives there. So there's a very famous case in San Francisco, I believe that was last year, where a minority couple, I think they were refinancing and they had their appraisal done in the home appraised for about 900,000, 950,000. And they knew that the home was much higher value than that. So they hired their own appraiser and they whitewashed their home. And I believe that they went so far as to have a white neighbor pose as the homeowner, got their own appraisal, and the value went up to nearly 1.5 million. In other words, increased by almost 50%. Well, that's all the proof they needed. And they brought a lawsuit, which I believe it just recently settled. And I'm not sure if the details of the lawsuit were made public, but that's essentially what whitewashing is, is devaluing those homes that are owned by minorities or in minority neighborhoods. So what you need to do as a credit union or as a mortgage department is have a good finger on the pulse of the neighborhoods in which you operate and have a good understanding of what those home values are. And if you see something, you have to say something. If you know that a home value comes in and it should be significantly higher in a certain neighborhood, you have to say something. If you let that go through, you're going to run into issues. And here's a little bit of a tip, especially if you are a Humda reporter and you have software, you can monitor this by looking at denials to minority borrowers for collateral value. If you see a high uptick in denials because of loan to value to minority borrowers, that can be one indicator of appraisal bias as well. Appraisal bias and the federal government, actually it's the PAVE task force is P-A-V-E. I wish I could tell you what that acronym stands for, but it has to do with valuation of collateral. 
it's such a big deal that there's a task force now that has been created to address this issue. And to go a step further with AI, you would think, okay, well, let's implement AI. AI doesn't discriminate. AI doesn't have human bias. Well, that's actually not true. So to try to be as well-rounded as I can on fair lending, I read books on AI. So what I've learned, and I'm not an expert on AI by any means, but what I've learned, Mark, from AI is what AI does is AI has to learn from somewhere. Artificial intelligence, the definition of it is it's intelligent, it can learn. Well, AI has to learn from somewhere. And AI learns from a discriminatory world. So if you assign AI to assign a value to a home and you imagine a white neighborhood over here to the West and a minority neighborhood over here to the East, and you have humans that are appraising these homes and they are appraising these homes to the West in these white neighborhoods at $800,000 and these homes to the East that are comparable at $500,000, AI is going to see that. And AI is just going to replicate that discrimination. Right. It learns from a discriminatory world. So don't think, well, I have AI, I have automated models. It's going to solve all these problems. No, if anything, it's going to replicate it at a rate which you can't even do as a human because AI can do it so much faster. Sure, sure. Garbage in, garbage out, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, the old yeah. accounting adage. Absolutely. That's right. Fascinating. Well, so this has been very educational. The whitewashing term, you taught me that here today. If there was one question that I didn't ask you today that I should have, what would that be and what would your answer be? I would say get educated on this. Get educated on how to build a fair lending program. You know, if you want to check out our school, great. If you want to get educated somewhere else, great. Our goal and my goal is, is I want to see discrimination ended in our industry. And I want to, by the end of my career, I would like to be able to see where we eliminate discrimination in our industry. And I realize that's a lofty goal. And I realize that maybe that's un unattainable. But if we can make an impact on that, and we can see the cases of redlining going down and DOJ referrals going down, I honestly believe that racist policies got us where we are today. But anti-racist policies and education can get us out of it. So if you work for a credit union and you have anything to do with setting policy at your organization and building a program, get educated on these topics. So um, our school is tcuniversity.us. You can check out our Fair Lending School. There's training opportunities out there. Don't bury your head in the sand. I'm not saying that you have or you have not. And just because the NCUA may or may not have done an exam or you feel they're not even doing an exam, number one, you should want to do this and build a program free of discrimination because it's the right thing to do. Number two, you should want to do it because your community is going to prosper. But number three, I'll give you one final selfish reason. If you are a Humda reporter, guess what? Humda data is public. So even I have access to Humda software. I can pull up any Humda reporter I want in the country and I can start pulling fair lending reports. And that is public data. And I can see if you're redlining, I can see if you're steering, I can see if you're pricing, I can see if you have high denial rates. And if I can do that, anyone with access to Humda data can do that. And there are a lot of curious people and bored people and reporters and whatnot that can do that on your organization as well. So even if it's a selfish, self-preservation reason to do it right, especially if you are a Humda reporter, all of your performance data is public. So you want to know about it before anyone else does. Think about it as an open book test.
you get to look up the answers and there's no reason for you not to know it before everyone else does. That's a great summary. And Tori, if you gave the information relative to the Tuscan Club Consulting, any other information you want to give on how someone could reach you if they wanted either to get your book or participate in some of the training that you offer? Yeah, absolutely. So our book's available on Amazon. If you want to make Jeff Bezos a little bit richer, you can order it there or you can order it from our website too. It's tcuniversity.us. You can order a copy of our book. We Those come shipped directly from us and we do, I sign each one of those. Now, if I send you a signed copy, I'm sorry, it will not increase its value at all, but maybe it'll not increase. Yet. It's, not yet. In, well, yeah, let's be realistic here. Yeah, not yet, but maybe it'll increase its sentimental value, but we ship them out directly from us. So if you want to get a copy of our book, you can certainly order it off our website or you can order it off of Amazon. Um, like I said, you can check out our school from there as well. Otherwise, if you want to contact me directly too, you can send me an email. My email address is Tori. It's T-O-R-Y at T-C Consulting. Dot us. There's a double C in there. So you can reach out to us. We do fair lending audits, but I will tell you, we are a small company. We've been around for five and a half years and we've been very, very busy. So we have very little capacity to take on new clients at this point, which is a good problem to have. But we often get a lot of requests for reviews and we just don't have the time to do it. But the point of our school is, is we teach you how to do the reviews so you can likely do it yourself. So that's really kind of the goal and the point of it is we try to teach you how to do it yourself so you don't have to hire somebody because it's a lot more expensive too. Very good. Thanks, Tori. And I've got this baseball thing I got to get out of my head and I'm not sure if All I right. have it right, but 1988 World Series. So that was the Dodgers beat the heavily favored Oakland Athletics in five games. Was that the Kirk Gibson? That injury? was a Kirk Gibson. It was game one. So that was his only at bat in the whole World Series. He got injured in the NLCS. Granted, he was already beaten up pretty bad, but he got injured in the NLCS. Right. And he didn't appear in the whole game. And Tommy Lasorda basically told him, he said, hey, get ready to hit. I might put you in. That was like the month that was Eckersley. Dennis Eckersley had, yep. right? They were down a yeah. run and they got all the way to the ninth inning. They got two outs. And Eckersley, I don't remember the batter before him, but was facing a former teammate that had some pop in his bat. And Eckersley was kind of worried about him, but the guy on deck was a light hitter. So Eckersley walked him. Really, he was worried about it. So he walked him. Well, then... Lasorda pulls the guy that was supposed to hit, puts Gibson in, who could barely even walk to the plate, and Gibson ends up getting the count full. And then it was funny because Gibson tells a story about a scout that told him when Eckersley gets a you know a left-hander to a three-two count, he throws this backdoor slider, and there's a video right before that pitch. Gibson steps out and he remembers that he gets in and that pitch is coming and he just kind of touches the bat and it goes out. And honestly, I'm a huge twins fan. So at 91 Kirby Puckett's home run is right. one of my favorites, but that home run is just sends chills up my spine every time. It does. Yeah. And as we were talking, I was thinking it was 88. I was doing it in my head and it, it's one of my most memorable TV watching experiences was, and then him limping around. Yeah. And that absolutely the Oakland Athletics were a much superior team and they went to three World Series in a row and they only won one in 89, which was overshadowed by the strike. Then they got swept by the Reds in 90 and they should have been one of baseball's dynasties and they were a dominant team and they only ended up winning one out of the three and they it was overshadowed by the earthquake in 89 and they are just kind of passed over as an average team now, even though they were one of the best. Yeah, and well, Kurt sorry, Gibson was a big part of that. He was a big part of it, and I don't one mean at a lot bat. Of 
<laughs> I don't meet a lot of people who know that era of baseball better than I do, but that your memory is even better than mine. And that was fun learning. You taught me something about that Gibson home run that I thought I already knew everything about. So this has been a lot of fun, Tori. I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for having me. You got it. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening. I hope you'll listen again soon. This is Mark Trichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktrichel.com. 